Uh, hi, I'm Fred Mandel, and you're listening to Talking Blues with Mako, which rhymes with taco. So, tell me about growing up in, is it Estevan, Saskatchewan? Yeah, Estevan, Saskatchewan. Which is, I presume, a little town, correct? 5,000 people when I was there. What did uh, your parents do? Well, my dad, uh, my mom was a homemaker, and my dad had a little little uh, clothing store called, coincidentally, Mandel's. And uh, he was, a, you know, his father had, had owned the store previously, and uh, my dad was, you know, went to high school, and I think he was going to go to university, but the war world, uh, had broken out, and... Uh, my uncle, who was my, you know, my dad's brother, was a medical doctor, and he was over in France and was unfortunately killed uh, by a landmine. So that meant my dad had to take over the store rather than going to university. So he ended up being storekeeper and uh, owned uh, Mandel's general store in Estevan. It's almost like that it's a wonderful life kind of thing. It, you know what? When I see that movie, that's the closest I've seen to my upbringing, except I was Jewish, but you know. <laughs> Uh, but everything else is pretty much the same. I mean, the house looks the same. The the kid getting, I've seen that. It's happened to me, getting my tongue stuck on the steel fence in wintertime, getting beaten up by bullies, all this stuff, you know. I, I hope you don't mind me asking, but was it difficult growing up a Jewish kid in a small town in Saskatchewan? Well, you would think it would be. Uh, my dad taught me to box when I was four years old. Wow. Uh, so I think he wanted to prepare me to take care of myself. but And I did have to. You had to fight. There were school fights every day there, it seemed like. But generally, it was a great bunch of people that lived in that town. Uh, for the most part, I never, I never encountered anything ever that was uh, racially, you know. I, I didn't feel any different. I went over to my friend's place on Christmas, you know, to see their stuff. And we had Hanukkah. But, I mean, uh, I was the only kid in, Jew in you know, the only, only Jewish kid in town. So... I didn't notice anything. I mean, I played hockey. I did all the stuff everybody else does, and really there was, it wasn't even a, an issue. So is it difficult being the only Jewish family in town? Like, I mean, can you, do you go to the synagogue? Is there a synagogue? There was, and then it moved to Regina. They could, but there were only three Jewish families in town, so it wasn't like, uh, you know, I mean, you didn't weren't enough people there to have a service. <laughs> <laughs> We had to go. We had to go to Regina, which is the big city, which was 125 miles away, and we'd only go there for like high holidays for you know Yom Kippur and right. uh, and my friends would come and visit us, and my grandparents lived in Winnipeg, so we would go to Winnipeg occasionally, and uh, that was always fun. And then big city music came early, or you started playing the piano like really early, like age really four, early. four, yeah. How did that happen? Well, I think the piano was always around the house, and uh, my dad was an influence on on me in the sense that he was he played piano uh, and fairly well. I mean, not you know, not it was still amateur playing, but he still played well. And my mom played a little bit like nursery rhymes, but my dad had a style that uh, I didn't realize till years later that he was playing New Orleans stride piano from the twenties and thirties, and that had an influence on me and. The fact that my dad understood that element of music and loved blues and that stuff made it a little easier for me to be a musician in the sense that we didn't have this big 
you know, you're not going to, you know, make it in this music. We didn't have those discussions because he <laughs> he liked to jam with me. So it wasn't like he could say that much because he, he appreciated, you know, music. So I, I watched him play and I learned some things from him. Started at four. And uh, my dad had a friend in Winnipeg by the name of Mitch Parks. And Mitch Parks was a professional piano player for CBC. Uh, and he played on a, I think it was a hymn sing or something was the name of the TV show he played on. But he was a serious, you know, pianist. For, pianist. And uh, he came to visit me at about six years old, my, my dad and I. And he uh, showed me a boogie woogie run at six, which took me until about 12 till I got it because my hands weren't big enough to do it. But so I had some of these influences when I was younger from uh, people around me and then from television. So... I always ask musicians who start that early, and oftentimes it's classical musicians, but there have been other other musicians. Um, at what point do you think you had the passion for music? Well, that's a tough thing to understand because I was so young, uh, you know, when I started that there was no real... It's not like other guys who got into it for, you know, money and chicks and all the stuff <laughs> that they talk about. Yeah, I don't have that same thing. I mean, I, it almost was... I wasn't trying to be a musician later on. I was actually going to go to university, and I was thinking of law, which probably would have been a good thing to take being a musician. <laughs> but uh, I I wasn't sure yet that I was going to be a professional musician. I wanted to be, but um, York University convinced me to become one. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, well, before, yeah. before we get to that, you started playing guitar at eight, which is like right. four years after you started playing piano. Yeah, well... <laughs> I started playing guitar with my own method because, you know, uh, this is before the Beatles had hit. You know, uh, this is from radio. I was listening to a lot of radio because Estevan was 10 miles north of the American border. Yeah. We used to get a lot of American stations, and I'd hear all sorts of country, rock and roll, early stuff, you know, uh, Bill Haley stuff, uh, which I'd, you know, uh, I'd play on the piano and a bunch of tunes, a lot of country stuff, which seeped its way into my my, uh, musical stuff. And, uh, at eight, I started to play, but I would play with my own tuning. I was playing with open tuning. So I played like that until I got to Toronto, and then I played with this guy who said, I'm not going to play with you. You don't play regularly. You've got a weird... <laughs> so I, at 12, I relearned the guitar with straight tuning, like, you know, uh, the real tuning, uh, E-A-D, you know. So I, I, I switched to that, so I had to relearn certain aspects of the guitar again. So it... 12 o'clock, 12 uh, years old, I started my um, guitar playing again. <laughs> and this is mainly old-time rock and roll? Was that your well, main? Um, it was country, it was rock. I mean, things really started hitting. I mean, I was already propelled to playing the stuff because I was playing rock and roll. My parents took me to a piano teacher, and she started teaching me, you know, the happy kangaroo. But I already knew, rock, you know, <laughs> the rock stuff. I didn't want to play the happy kangaroo. So I would memorize the lesson, come back, and play it back to her the next week. But she caught me one week because I was looking on the wrong page playing. The <laughs> so she was very uh, open-minded and very helpful in a lot of ways because she allowed me to play my stuff in recitals. I'd have to play one of her tunes, and then I could play one of my little rock compositions or something I knew. So she let me do that when we'd have recitals. But the, after a while, I you know I wasn't getting much from lessons. I was too far into the... you know self-taught rock playing myself and and um, hearing things by ear came easy to you or playing at the by time ear? they did yeah i played by ear and 
You know, I mean, I've heard people talk about this. It was almost, um, in some ways, it was a, you know, maybe it was a negative aspect because I didn't come from a sophisticated place where you, you know, you grow up, you learn how to read music, and you're going to be a session musician. You want to come, you know, cover all those areas. I came from a town where it's just rock and roll on the and country on the radio, so I played what I heard. And there was no profession in mind, uh, you know. Otherwise, it would have probably done me a lot of good to learn how to read. Uh, it could have enhanced and expanded my horizons. But at the time, that wasn't a factor. So, when we moved to Toronto, what was it like coming from a small town of five thousand people? Well, it was culture shock, you know. Um, I uh, I had never taken a bus really before I took a bus to school every day you know I, I we moved into a hotel for three months uh, the Benvenuto which was right on Avenue Road oh, I and I went that. to a school uh, yeah Jesse Ketchum I went to Jesse Ketchum which strangely enough was behind Yorkville and uh, I had to repeat grade seven because they didn't have new math in Saskatchewan yet so when I came out I was so far behind everybody that I had to repeat a year and I was always the youngest kid in the class so when I had to repeat, I ended up with the people my own age, who, some of whom are lifelong friends. I'm still friends with people from that era. Wow. And then music is still very much a part of your life at this point in Toronto. Um, what was it about Toronto that might have changed how you viewed music at that young age? Well, Toronto had a very vibrant music scene. Uh, Toronto was sort of... Specific, guys like Donnie, I look at it in three different waves. I look at the guys who are the Stones and the Beatles and their age, and in between are guys like Donnie and Burton Cummings and sort of guys that were in between myself and the Beatles' age, like 11 years difference between us. And Donnie and Bert and some other guys were in between. That was sort of a second wave of guys in there. And then third wave of myself, Dave Tyson, guys like that that played around town. Um I've always looked at a sort of a three different waves of players in there. And uh, I guess in Toronto, I was hearing, I started hearing all these chum FM broadcasts from Maple Leaf Gardens. You know, they'd have bands, Canada Day, you know, bands playing all day. And I was too young to go to any of these clubs. I wasn't old enough to go to clubs. And I lived, I walked through Yorkville every day. I couldn't go to the clubs there where Neil Young and Joni Mitchell were playing. I didn't know that. Right. Um, so I just listened to the radio, you know, the Chum station at the time. And then uh, I was into the Toronto bands. And I occasionally, I think I saw Little Caesar in the consoles. As I got, got older, I started going to concerts at the Rock Pile and Maple Leaf Gardens. And eventually, the con, you know, the Toronto Pop Festival, I saw everybody eventually. And some bands that I would actually end up playing with, strangely enough. So how did you wind up joining those bands? Like, were you in high school bands yourself? Yeah, we had an original band. I was in a band with Chris Hall, uh, who became a solo artist on his own in Toronto for a while. Very good artist. Um, and we've been friends for years, but he and I had a band together. And, uh, you know, we did some band competitions. We competed against Ben Mink and his band, which was a blues band. And uh, Ben was, you know, a great blues player at the time. Uh, and uh, I used to go watch him play. And Mike McKenna was around town, but I was younger, you know. I, I so I'd see these guys playing if I could go to, you know, the church basements and open air free concerts. How did you meet Donnie? 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 Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh well, 
I met Donnie, originally I was touring with Lighthouse, and we happened to be in, uh, I think it was Washington, um, and the Guess Who were in Washington, so Lighthouse went to see the Guess Who play. I didn't really meet Donnie then, I saw him, I was a little intimidated because he was a hot guitar player around at the time, yeah. but um, I had heard that uh, Donnie was looking for, when I was playing, I think it was after, uh, after Lighthouse, I think I was playing with a band called Devotion. And uh, Terry Hattie was singing, and Mike Slosky on drums, I believe, but uh, Freddie Keeler from David Clayton Thomas's old band. And Donnie was looking for a keyboard player, and he came out to see me play, and uh, that's when I met him that night. It's a funny story about that, but, uh, you know, oh, I'll make it short. Yeah, do share. Uh, okay. All right. Well, Donnie came out to see me play, and I, uh, I was just outside of town. Uh, God, I forget the name of the place, but it was like, you know, uh, Oakville or something and off the QE uh, yeah, yeah. the QEW and uh, he came out to see me play I was kind of nerve wracking and afterwards he said you know uh, let's go out down to Sai Wu's and get some uh, Chinese food after the gig, the gig and I want to talk to you so I thought oh that's good he probably wants to I don't know what he wants but this is a good sign <laughs> so on the way back we're kind of tearing back to Toronto uh, 1 o'clock in the morning and we're kind of speeding. I thought he's going pretty quick. So I'm behind him, and uh, I notice that the police car coming up on us. And I'm going to try and warn Donnie. So I kind of sped around him and tried to say, "There's a you better slow down. <laughs> Next thing I know, he's pulling Donnie over to the side of the road. And we were both going pretty fast, but I thought, this is a really bad omen. So I should pull over to the side of the road. And I'll be courteous, and Donnie will see that I'm, you know, waiting for him. So I pull over in front of Donnie and move down a little bit, and I uh, think I'll just get out of the car and wait for him to finish the business, and then I can talk to Donnie, and we'll go back get our Chinese food. I get out of the car, and the uh, officer is starting to write a ticket to Donnie, and he looks up and sees that I stopped, and he goes, "Hey, come here." <laughs> <laughs> I go, "What?" Well, I had been speeding too, so he gave me a ticket, so two for one. <laughs> So Don and I ended up at Sai Wu's at 2 in the morning commiserating, but he did invite me to join his band, and that was a really great opportunity for me. And at this point, um, what are you thinking about your career? Like, is this before you went to York University, during, after? What are you thinking in terms of... Yeah, I had gone to York University uh, when I was around 19, I think, and... uh, I But when I got there, all the courses that I thought I would take were unavailable. Uh, there was a lottery system, and I ended up like like nine, 265 out of 300. So there was nothing left but dissecting fetal pigs and sociology and uh, <laughs> one other class. And I thought, this sucks, you know. I, how can I be a lawyer with, you know, these courses? <laughs> but I had to pick two. So there was one that said uh, rock, pop, and jazz, an investigation into recording techniques and the world of rock, pop, music, and jazz, and exposure to music. And uh, I thought, oh, this is great. I'll learn how the Beatles recorded, and they'll talk about recording and uh, pop and, you know, all the things I want to learn about. This sounds pretty good, so I'll take this one. And then I took sociology, which was just a very boring course, but it was a whole year comparison of Canada and Senegal. Well, I learned that Senegal exports peanuts, and Canada buys them. That was pretty much it. Um, Took a year with that class. Uh, So my jazz course was kind of strange because my other friends were in it. Dave Tyson, 
who wrote uh, Black Velvet and Lana Miles, and Eddie Schwartz, who wrote Hit Me With Your Best Shot. So we, we uh, you know, a few of us were in that class, but it was very restrictive. They didn't want to know anything about pop or any of the other things. All they wanted to talk about was jazz, and if you played anything else, they hated you. <laughs> so one of the teachers caught me... Uh, one of the teachers caught me in one of the small portable rooms outside. There was a piano, and I was just noodling by myself. I was playing Peaceful, Easy Feeling by the Eagles, playing my Floyd Kramer licks. And I was looking down, and he came into the class, and he said, Mandel, if I catch you playing that crap here again, you're out. I'm kicking you out. So needless to say, um, I took a little percussion course, and that you know, kind of equaled out my marks because the teacher there was a little spacey and he said, if you come to my class, I'll give you an A. So I went to his class, <laughs> equaled out my terrible mark in jazz, and I decided this was not for me. So um, shortly thereafter, I got an, uh, you know, an offer to join Grant Smith uh, and The Power, and that was my first professional gig. And are you thinking, I'm going to be a musician, a full-time musician, or was that just, I'm going to play music for a little while and maybe find something else? Well, to tell you the truth, it kind of led me. I didn't have a plan, and I didn't have a plan when I was with Grant. I just wanted to play because I'd been playing all this time, and it was in my blood. And these guys were professional, and this was my first gig, and it was, was a, what I thought the big time. I mean, you know, Grant had talked about us playing Vegas, and to me, playing a lounge in Vegas would have been the highlight of my career, you know, to go play, you know, some lounge in Vegas was, that's, you know, that's all I expected. <laughs> Um, and I, we never even really did that. We played supper clubs and, you know, we played a lot of dumps, to be honest. We played a lot of dumps around Ontario. We played all the same places that the Hawks, you know, leave on the Hawks. We'd see their pictures everywhere we played. And they'd been there like a few years before and left to go back Bob Dylan. But, uh, the, the pictures were up in all the clubs we played. And a lot of the clubs were, you know, kind of dumps. They were hotels, old, old hotels. You'd play in the lounge and then you'd stay in the hotel for the week. You know, there was no bathroom in the room, and some of them you had to go down the hall. There was a rope for a fire escape. It was a whole paying your dues, you know, scenario. And and when you were going through that, like, did you think, oh, this is just paying my dues, and there's better things up ahead, or how did you view that ex existence? You know, I think I had blinders on. I don't really think. I thought it was show business. I thought this was great. You know, now I'm on the road and I'm playing. It was just all exciting to me. I mean, and my parents would probably look at horror in where I was staying. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, in retrospect, it was good because we played a lot and, and we got our chops together in those clubs. You know, you play, you play six nights a week and a matinee on Saturday. So you're playing all week, you know. Uh, every single night you're playing. Rough places, a lot of fights, you know, the old Canadian Saturday night's all right for fighting. <laughs> And so was Friday, and so was Thursday. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of places we have played, Sarnia and uh, all these, you know, little places, Wealth, the Choo Choo Stop, and a lot of little places around Ontario. And then we went out to Halifax, and then Grant and I drove straight back from Halifax to Toronto. I think it took us 23 hours or something. Did you ever question what you were doing at that point? No, I really wasn't questioning it because... Uh, it just seemed to be leading me somewhere, and I, I, I wasn't sure where, and uh, I didn't really care, you know? I mean, I was still living in my parents' place because I, I there was no point getting an apartment because never there. I wasn't in town. Yeah, I wasn't there. So 
I'd come back to a normal situation. I got along with my parents, you know, and uh, I didn't leave Toronto until uh, I was 24. And what made you leave Toronto? I got an offer from Dick Wagner. I had just finished doing uh, Dick Wagner's solo record with Bob Ezrin. Uh, Donnie asked me to play on that. Donnie was playing guitar. Dave Tyson was playing keyboards. I was playing piano. And Prakash was playing, uh, Prakash John was playing bass. And uh, we cut some tracks with Dick Wagner. And Dick was the musical director for Alice Cooper. And Joey Chorowski had been the keyboard player. And he left. And uh, they had an opening. And Dick wanted me to play keyboards with them. So I asked Donnie if it's okay, because I was still pretty young. And uh, I said, I've got this offer to go play with Alice Cooper in the States. And he said, you, you know, you should do it. So um, I decided to leave uh, in May 1977. And I had been producing Eddie Schwartz. I'd been working with Eddie on some of his stuff. And uh, I, I'd already played with Dave Tyson with Don Torano's band. And I knew Dave was really good. So I turned um, my production situation over to Dave and said, you should work with Eddie. And it turned out to be a pretty lucrative situation for both of them. Mm-hmm. So I left... Uh, May 77, to go join Alice's band in the States. So this would have been the Welcome to My Nightmare album, or which which one would it be? That was a, yeah, it was right after that. It was a nightmare band. Okay. Uh, they had already recorded the album, but I joined. It was Steve Hunter on guitar, Dick Wagner, Pakash John from Toronto, and Whitey Gland from right. Toronto on drums. So now you're at a different level very quickly. Like, I, I would imagine that now you're playing arenas and big theaters. Yeah. What was that like for you? Well, I had played some arenas uh, with Donnie. We opened for Santana uh, in Ottawa and, uh, you know, some other places. But, you know, uh, it worked its way up from Grant playing small clubs and prisons. We did a couple of prisons where, it's coincidentally, Grant knew most of the population. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> They were his friends. Uh, I wasn't really worried, but he did this thing in the, his act where he'd go out and put a feather boa around someone's neck while we played the stripper theme, and uh, these guys all knew him. So, uh, <laughs> Anyway, it went from that to Lighthouse, where we were playing bigger concert halls. I played with Lighthouse for a year, and then to Donnie Triano's band. And Donnie's band really prepared me for every other gig that came afterwards because it was such an intense musical experience. It was like uh, fusion rock, R&B, all these things mixed into one. And uh, expectations were high, and you had to play full out every night. So that kind of set me up for playing with all the other bands I ended up with. And then uh, ended up in L.A., and the first thing we did was The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That was my first real gig with Alice. Wow. And then we did, uh, I think, Stockton and Sacramento as a warm-up gig, and then we played to 70,000 people as headliners at the... At a festival at Anaheim Stadium here, uh, I think the Tubes and Sean and I were opening up and the Kinks, and we were kind of the headliners. And that was my first, you know, L.A. big show. <laughs> okay, so if if you've never played seventy thousand people, what is it like when you step out on stage and like is it the same as playing in front of fifteen thousand people? Is it like how do you how do you approach? It a wasn't game? the same. It wasn't the same, but there were distractions. I mean, don't forget this is Alice Cooper, so it's not a normal audience. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> the first thing that happens is we had a magic screen on stage, um, and this was kind of a large 
movie screen that would come up and it had slits in it. So it would show a visual image of Alice running towards the audience. And then the real Alice would pop through the screen and onto the stage, like a three-dimensional, you know, like off the movie screen into the reality. Right. But unfortunately, there were some people in the crowd who were throwing M80s at the stage, uh, <laughs> which is a quarter stick of dynamite. And uh, the first thing that happened is they set the screen on fire <laughs> while it was still in the box. And so we had a bunch of guys on stage spraying fire extinguishers. This is before we even started playing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was a little distracted by that, but we'd had two warm-up gigs and rehearsals. So... You know, you just get out there, you have to do your job, and you either do it or you don't do it. And fortunately, I was able to do it, and uh, we just continued from there. Did a lot of gigs and played around the States, and uh, I guess it was with Alice for four years or so. And I played keyboards for the first three years and then switched to guitar on the last tour. So musically, I mean, um, I think of you as a keyboard player, but what do you think of yourself as? Is it basically the same to you, one, one and the other? Uh, I, it's sort of the grass is greener, you know, when I'm playing keyboards, <laughs> I want to play guitar and when I'm playing guitar, you know, you know, when guys are all tuning their guitars nowadays down half a step and everything. So all the songs that used to be in E are now in, you know, D are now in C sharp and all the horrible keys that you have to play in unless you're a classical player. So, uh, I mean, basically I think, um, I think, uh, guitar a lot at the time when I'm soloing, just because uh, I've been a guitar player so long. And, uh, you know, uh, I think I'm sort of both, and I write in different different ways on guitar. I played a lot of guitar on my own record. I played everything except for drums, uh, bass, guitar, uh, all, all the stuff, and did the vocals. So uh, it's kind of half and half, but I've been playing a lot of guitar lately. I've been spending, you know, trying to catch up on that. Keyboards I can come back to after a long period of time. Guitar is not that, as easy and when you go into a solo from one instrument, let's say you, I mean, I presume your approach to doing a solo is quite different as a guitar player uh, versus being a keyboard player approaching a solo. Or is it the same to you? No, I think more guitar when I'm doing solos for the most part, at least synthesizer stuff. Uh, well, the good example is I Want to Break Free, right. the, keys, uh, the Queen solo. Um a lot of people think that was Brian May because it's guitar phrasing and guitar thought on those on just laid back soloing on the way I played it. And so for a long time, people thought it was Brian who had played that solo, but, uh, you know, he knew it. We, we cleared it up. And uh, <laughs> it was a one-take keyboard solo. They just wanted me to play a solo, and I was used to being in sessions, so I just played a solo. And, but I was the first solo played by an, an outsider outside of Queen, I didn't realize there were political ramifications, but uh, <laughs> but I was thinking thinking guitar on that, you know, um, and uh, I treated it as a guitar thing because when I was with Donnie, we did a lot of soloing back and forth. Dave Tyson and I would do synthesizer solos, and that was early synthesizer days. We only had we had a synthesizer sizer each, which had two notes on it and a bender, and we would play four notes all together, the four of us, as a horn, you know, to do horn shots and replicate a horn. Uh, arrangement behind Donnie's tunes, some of them. So I started soloing back then, and Jan Hammer was out with Jeff Beck, and I I was really influenced by his playing. He always played like a guitar. Jeff Beck called him one of his favorite guitar players. <laughs> uh, you know, and he was a keyboard player. So I think, I think, uh, you know, I guess I want to break free is a good example of that type of uh, guitar Okay, so you, before you talked about 
being more of a a touring musician than a studio musician, but you've certainly contributed, like the example you just said, but on many records. Um, how was it adapting to becoming a recording musician versus a touring musician? Did that come easy to you? Uh, it took a while because I got thrown into the midst of, uh, you know, my I think my first sessions were with Don Troiano, uh, he took Dave Tyson and myself down to New York to do his uh, record Burning at the Stake. And that we were, you know, pretty hot band at the time in the sense of Toronto. But uh, this was the first time I'd gone to the record. And, you know, we went down, recorded a record with uh, Randy Brecker was, and Richard Landis were producing Randy from the Brecker Brothers. Um, and these were New York session guys. So... All of a sudden, we're playing with Steve Ferroni from the Average White Band, who's now who's the drummer on this, and a guy named Neil Jason, both top musicians. So um, we knew our parts. So it wasn't like we were going into this, like you walk into a session cold and uh, play the stuff. But they were kind of walking in cold, and they did an amazing job. So it showed me what level of playing you had to strive to, uh, to attain to be able to do these type of sessions. Um, and that was my first experience in the studio, playing with Steve Ferroni and, uh, and Dave and Donnie. And we got the record done. I think it's a pretty good record. And it's a strange thing, but uh, about a year or so ago, I did a session in L.A. It was like 40-some years later. And Steve Ferroni was the drummer. And I walked in. He walked in, and I said, hey, hey hi, Steve. I haven't seen you for 40 years. <laughs> and he thought I was joking. And he just laughed and said, hi. I need to, of course, I'm 40 years older. He didn't recognize me. <laughs> But I said, we had a break, and I said, Steve, you don't remember, but I wasn't ki kidding about that. We actually recorded a record in 77, in uh, 76, I guess it was, in uh, New York and uh, with Donnie. And he remembered the whole thing. So, you know, he went on to play with Clapton, and now he's with Tom Petty's band, or was, you know. Yeah. Wow. Um, you also did, I presume, through Donnie, you, you got connected with Bob Ezrin. Yeah. And so I, I presume that at that point, you did a little more studio work, including your work with Pink Floyd and The Wall. Yeah, well, I only played on a few tracks. I mean, it's so funny that stories get blown out of proportion. I went and I saw this book in a bookstore. I was looking, thumbing through it, and it was a, you know, one of these hardcover books on Pink Floyd and The Wall and all the intricate details. And I'm thumbing through it, and I see I've, I'm looking through, and I'm seeing I played on every single track almost. <laughs> I, I didn't play on all those tracks, so I guess someone got the research a little wrong. I played on two tracks, uh, In the Flesh and The Show. And it was kind of a funny story. Uh, Bob Ezrin called me. I was talking to him. I called him. I was talking to him about something completely unrelated. And he said, can you play organ, uh, by the way? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. I hadn't touched an organ for a long time. As a matter of fact, I couldn't remember... <laughs> how you turn a B3 on, because I, Dave Tyson took care of those details. I was, you know, Fender Rhodes, Clavinet, and Synthesizer. Dave was B3, and so, but fortunately, I played enough Hammonds to remember, and I knew a basic way, you know, I knew basically how to play Hammonds, so I just remembered, I walked in the studio with going, turn, run on, after start, and I had it going through my head. Fortunately, the organ was on when I walked in there. <laughs> There was these, these guys waiting for me, and I'd, I'd seen Pink Floyd a couple times before, but I didn't know who they were. So I walked into the studio, and it was Gilmore and uh, Waters were there, uh, Gilmore and Waters, and uh, I ended up just, you know, playing the part on those those two tracks, and had Chinese food, Dave bought us lunch, and it was kind of fun. <laughs> That's great. And then, that did that lead to the Alice Cooper sessions? 
no, I had already been with Alice for four years okay, uh, right. by the time I did the wall. Uh, I was with Alice 77, 78, 79, and 80. Right, okay. So you, you tour with Alice Cooper. And at that point, what are you thinking as a musician? That now this is my career path and I'm with Alice Cooper's band and this is what I'll be doing for a long time? Or does one think that way when, when you tour at that level? I think I was always thinking in the moment. I didn't really have a plan, and uh, the music was leading me. I was just entering, you know, these situations were presenting themselves. I wasn't really looking for them. I've only gone to a couple auditions in my life. Uh, the other things sort of came to me, and um, I was just fortunate that I, you know, was in the right place at the right time when these opportunities presented themselves. Because I did a record with Alice that I co-wrote uh, called Flush the Fashion, and I wrote most of it on guitar, except for a song called Pain that I wrote on piano, which is classically oriented. And uh, Todd Rundgren was going to end up producing it, but he didn't. Uh, I did a couple tracks with him and his band, Utopia, and they covered, uh, we did this one tune of mine, and then Roy Thomas Baker entered the, the scene, and he did the whole record. So through Roy, I think that was my connection to Queen. So one thing led to another. You know, I did some sessions with him with Cheap Trick, and then I think he must have recommended me to Queen because that was my next gig after uh, Alice on tour. Okay, so I don't know if you can answer this, but what is it about you that has op offered all these opportunities, such as playing with Alice and Queen and many others? Can you quantify that? You know, I couldn't put my finger on it other than to say uh, that part of it is luck and then... You know, I heard someone say that, uh, oh, he's very talented or something, uh, you know, talking about somebody else in Los Angeles. And the response from the guy said, well, yeah, everybody's talented in Los Angeles. That's a given, you know. Uh, a lot of these musicians are talented. That So the talent really just backs up the luck and the opportunity, you know. So um, I think it's a combination of luck and, uh, you know, maybe my experience being able to play and also being able to get along with people because, uh, you know, I'm not really a druggie or anything. I don't do drugs and stuff. So uh, I did. I got rid of all my, those habits in the '60s, and uh, anything I did, you know. But do you have like a philosophy or code that you live by in terms of how you how you work professionally? Well, I think the only code I treat each situation, uh, no matter what I'm doing, I try to treat it as as professionally as you know whether it's queen or whether i'm doing you know when i was doing local gigs around town i'm not really i mean there's less pressure in those situations but you're just playing as well as you can under all circumstances no matter who you're playing with and i've never really discriminated and i i go to blues jams and sleazy little bars here just to keep my guitar chops up and uh, i'm not a snob when it comes to playing with people i play with all different you know, brotherhood of musicians. I kind of believe in that. Um, and just trying to get the job done. I'm not, you know, I got thrown into the session scene here when I, with Alice. Uh, the first session I did was like, I think it was David Foster session and Steve Lukather and all these heavy players were on it. And I couldn't even read the chart. I did one song and I could barely read the chart. And I wasn't qualified for that, nor did I, you know, uh, it, I've always been in bands where I'm playing my own parts. We're going into the studio to cut a record where they're my parts. I, you know, I've, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not reading other people's stuff. I'm, I'm 
creating the parts myself, and then they're created, and other people have to read those parts. Um, so I've been luck fortunate to be in original bands, but I've done. I got better at sessions as the uh, I got through the '80s and the '90s. I started to get better again and uh, and try to improve things. Is that through reading better or just being able to improvise better? Well, I think it's just a little more experience, and uh, I started getting to the country world through my friend Philip Sace. I met a guy by the name of Dave Cobb, who's probably the number one country produce, producer in, in Nashville now. But Dave was doing a lot of country sessions in L.A. and rock stuff, too. So I, I did uh, Oak Ridge, the Oak Ridge Boys with him, and then we did a record for a country artist named Jamie Johnson, and that went to number one on the country charts, and it was named one of the top 35 records of that year and it was called the guitar song so uh, that put me in the country scene a little bit and i've done a few other things i worked with chris stapleton remotely um but uh we were doing country stuff here and that kind of introduced me to that aspect of uh playing and i just more more the more you do studio stuff the better you you become just by experience um it's to me it's kind of surprising not maybe it's not surprising but you know, you described yourself as a touring musician, but you certainly played on a lot of albums. And the yeah. fact that the Queen, Queen, you were on a number of Queen's albums, um, does that surprise you at all? Like, well, did you feel like well, part of being part of the band at that point? Yeah, because I was friends with those guys, so I was hanging out with them personally. Like, they were coming over to my house, and we were going out for dinner, and it was a personal relationship, particularly with Brian and particularly with John. Uh, who were in town, you know, uh, we used to go out and locally in L.A., you know, just we go to TGIF and hang around. <laughs> the, uh, That's where the rock stars hang out? <laughs> yeah, well, they do if you live in Canoga Park and you got, you know, I mean, and uh, I felt pretty, those guys were my friends by the end of the tour, you know. Uh, I did Tour of America and Japan with them, so... We'd been quite a few dates, and we did Saturday Night, Night Live, you know. Um, so uh, there was a personal relationship, and I'm still friends with Brian to this day. So, uh, you know, um, yeah, I didn't feel intimidated. As a matter of fact, uh, 2014, they released a track that we had cut. We cut it for Brian's uh, wife, Anita Dobson, and uh, it was a track called uh, Let Me In Your Heart Again. And I always liked that track. And uh, it seemed like a Queen track to me. And I kept telling Brian, this is a great track. You should do something with the, do the band thing. And it turned out that he put Freddie on vocals on this. And they released it as a Queen track in 20, 2014 with me playing piano. So it was, you know, Roger, John, uh, Brian, myself, and Freddie. I wasn't there when Fred did his vocals, but I did Freddie's solo record. But uh, anyway, it came out and uh, it's on, uh, I think, Queen Forever record. And it really is a raw track and one of Freddie's best vocals, I think. Wow. And I was very proud to be associated with it. And then I did all the stuff on the works, you know, Radio Gaga and uh, Break Free and so Hammer to Fall, some other stuff. You also did Brian May's Starfleet Project, which I remember buying. It was like an EP, and I think Eddie Van yeah. Halen was on that album. Yeah, Eddie was on that. It was uh, Brian Gratzer from REO Speedwagon, Phil Chen, who'd played with Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck, yeah. um, Eddie, Brian, and myself. Basically a blues format that we were doing, uh, but we also cut some, you know, kind of pop tune uh, from uh, one of the uh, tracks on there. Then you go on, as I don't know if Supertramp came next or Elton John came next. Well, it went Queen, uh, 
in 82. Uh, then it went to um, Supertramp in 83. And uh, then I ended up joining the Elton John band in 1984. Do you have like do you have a manager on this or like is it just word of mouth that they say well let's let's call Fred? No, it's just me curled up in a fetal ball <laughs> on my living room floor with a telephone. <laughs> I, I I just find that the string of the different acts they've worked with so phenomenal. I don't know if you see it that way because this is your world, but you know I, I yeah I wasn't yeah it's not like I said there's a lot of strange foreshadowing in my life because when I lived in Toronto my friend Larry Weisbrod and I decided to skip out of school on a an after, Thursday afternoon or something to see Alice Cooper who was doing a live television performance at CFTO <laughs> so we skipped out of school we went over there I had a question written down on my nervous little hand you know I understand you have a uh, contraption that allows you to hang yourself <laughs> sir and well yes why yes I do Fred and nine years later, I was in his band. <laughs> That's crazy. So same thing with Elton. Uh, when I was with Alice, you know, Alice always used to see... Alice lived in Beverly Hills, and Elton lived next door. But, you know, you don't see your next-door neighbors because they're huge houses and gates and shrubbery. Right. So Davey Johnstone and Dee Murray from uh, Elton's band, they were no longer with Elton at that time, and they joined Alice's band in 1978. So we were doing some rehearsing or something. I was over to Alice's house, and Davey was there. And Davey said, let's go, you know, visit Elton. So uh, I said, oh, okay. Because uh, Alice always used to say, I'm going to go next door and borrow a cup of diamonds. You know? uh, <laughs> so we went next door, and I met Elton in his house, and just Davey and I, and, you know, didn't think much of it. And then, you know, six years later, I was in his band. So that type of thing happened. When you tour at that level, and we're talking, like, the top level of classic rock. Does is it pretty much the same between one band and the other? Like the level that Queen is at versus Superchamp versus Alice Cooper versus Elton John. I mean, in my world, it's it's a very high level. And I remember seeing I think Elton John at Maple Leaf Gardens, and I think yeah. you were playing there, and I think he introduced you as one of the Canadian musicians. And I thought, well, how does that happen? But like when you're touring with that at that level, is it very different from one band to another, or is it very similar? It's somewhat similar in the sense that uh, the organization is uh, very impeccable in the sense that everything gets done, and you know the road crew are the uh, warriors, road warriors that take care of everything, make sure everything gets done. And without them, there is no show. But just the booking, all the things are done um, on a high level. But as far as the crowds, you still have to go out there and whatever position you're playing, you have to do your best and work for the response, you know. And you can sort of gauge the uh, the response sometimes. But it, with Alice, it started the big crowds where, you know, you had this sense that, there's thousands of people out there watching me. So I better not screw this up. <laughs> uh, that's what you're thinking. And it's the same every night, you know. Uh, it's not like you just relax. Every night is, you know, I guess you take it for granted, but there's a high level of... Uh, when I listen to some of the concerts we play, I think oh, we were functioning and playing pretty well. It's a tough thing. It kind of elevates itself because, you know, then you go to a blues bar and play some crappy you know three bar blues and 
you know, I don't know. It's just a different level of, is expected of you. And eventually, you know your parts very well, and you rise to that level. Um, but the crowds are somewhat different for the, you know, for Supertramp. Uh, they were, Europe was huge for Supertramp. It wasn't as big in the States, but I remember one gig we played like uh, 90, 100,000 outside of Paris. And, wow. you know, I did uh, Elton. We did, a, you know, in 84, we played uh, Wembley Stadium, just, uh, just the band, which was a tight little rock and roll band. It was Dee Murray, David Johnstone, Nigel, Olsen, Elton, and myself. And I think there was about 80... 100,000 people there. So we did that in 84. So when we did it again in 85 with Live Aid, it wasn't as intimidating because we'd already played a full Wembley Stadium with our little band. And how much improvisation is there with bands like that at that level? I, I, I get the impression that maybe there isn't a lot. Well, it depends. I mean, I was in a strange position that in all these bands because as the music carried me away into different situations, it also put me in different situations that I would not normally have been in, in the sense that I'm a rock and roll keyboard player, basically piano. Uh, that's where I come from. And then I ended up in this band with this guy named Elton John, who coincidentally also happened to be a rock and roll <laughs> keyboard player. So that plot was taken. So I ended up playing, you know, synthesizer stuff and uh, embellishments, and I'd play, you know, guitar on Bitch or Saturday Night Live. Doing, I, I was soloing on bitch i'd play a solo on that every night and some other tunes too uh so it allowed me the opportunity to play guitar i did a guitar solo with super tramp some nights um so i was playing different instruments but yeah it uh there were different responses to the different bands and different opportunities in each band to function you know but i wasn't really functioning what i really do can i ask you do you have a few favorite moments or favorite songs that that just kind of come back at you when you're just not thinking about anything and just the, like favorite memories, I guess. Well, it was kind of a thrill when I'd written some stuff with Alice to play it live. I wrote this song called Pain, which is kind of a grotesque lyrics, <laughs> but it, I wrote it as kind of, kind of a classically based uh, piano-oriented uh, tune. And uh, when we were touring, I switched to guitar for that tour because all, all the other stuff I'd written was rock and roll guitar stuff. But... I would go play that piano for that particular tune. So that was nice to experience that. And then Alice has just recently added it to his set again. So um, that's nice that it has some longevity. But I, I enjoyed playing a lot of different tunes. I mean, Elton was an influence on me, so it was great to play Burn Down the Mission with him. Wow. Um, you know, and uh, Leave On, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, all the other tunes, you know. Uh, I used to like playing Don't Leave Me Now with Supertramp. That was one of Roger's tunes, and I had a guitar solo on that one. And it was just a really, gave me an opportunity to really wind out and stuff in front of like, you know, 30,000 people and stuff. It was a lot of fun. Okay, so when you spend years and years touring at that level, one after another, then, I mean, I can imagine, like, you spent like a ridiculous amount of time on the road. Where, like, you. Well, yeah. I, I mean,. <laughs> And maybe not as much as some guys, but I spent enough time, you know, Elton was probably one of the busiest in the sense that he was touring hard. Like I think the first tour in 84 was 10 months because we would do three months in Europe, three months in the States, three months in a recording studio, uh, six weeks or something in Australia and in the wintertime, you know, we were going all over the world basically and uh, repeating it every year. So uh, we were 
we were kicking it pretty hard, and uh, you're on stage no matter how you feel, you know. <laughs> and and so where is home at that point? Like when you when you go one one tour after another, and in your case, one band after another, like is there is there is there a place that you feel is home, or like is the hotel basically the home? Well, sometimes no, no. I I lived in Los Angeles at the time, uh, and my daughter was born in Los Angeles, so I would come home to Los Angeles. You know, that's where I lived. Uh, I had a green card, and as far as the Canadian thing is concerned, people, I don't know, they think I'm an American or something, but I was a Canadian until a few years ago. I've been a, I was a Canadian in Alice's Band. I was a Canadian in Queen. I was a Canadian in Supertramp. I was a Canadian in Elton John's Band. I was a Canadian in all the things I did with, with all the different bands. So, I mean, there's a question sometimes about recognition and stuff, so, you know... I really never saw much about myself in anything. The last time I got covered for anything was Wilder Penfield in 1978. He <laughs> did something on the Alice tour. Right. So, I mean, I'm just putting it out there that there are guys out there doing stuff, and uh, they might they might be Canadian. You might be Canadian. <laughs> eh? So when you spend all that time on the road, is there one point where you just think, okay, that's enough, I'm, I'm done? Like, it must get tired. Yeah. Well, in 90, uh, I started doing stuff in L.A., and I came back to L.A., and uh, Elton took a year off to, uh, to get himself, you know, detoxed, and uh, and he needed to do that. And uh, so I had to find something else to do, and I really didn't know how to work in Los Angeles now, but I was also kind of tired of being on the road, so I started trying to figure out a way to, you know, get myself together, you know, but things went downhill pretty fast after that for a while I started doing some producing and stuff and it took me a long time to uh to get myself back to uh being an LA player and doing stuff uh around town I didn't know any people here in the sense that I couldn't come back to uh a base it's not like coming back to Toronto where people know I can play and I know everybody here I knew people but uh I hadn't worked with people other than professional situations and there was I was a Canadian living in Los Angeles playing with British bands so it's a very schizophrenic uh, existence and I didn't have a base of uh, people I could work with in LA so I had to kind of claw my way back into doing sessions and I did that through some friends that I it took me a long time years Um, was that difficult and uh, yeah it was yeah because I didn't I didn't have the same skills that studio players had you know uh I had, I was, I'd always been in original bands playing my parts, and you know, it was tough to go in and read charts and things I didn't know. But it took me a while to get that. I got that a little better together, and uh, I'm better at it now. But um, it did take a long time, and to meet people and form relationships, so there was a, you know, musical community I could relate to. Because when I came back off the road, I didn't, I didn't have that. So. When I look at old interviews with you, they talk about, or you talk about your solo album, and and yeah, and I understand. Is it is it done now, or is it? Are you still finishing the piece? It's finished. Uh, the problem I'm having now is just, uh, and I'm hopefully going to rectify this next week. It's just some of the uh, technical details from a legal standpoint of publishing and those type of things, and who to have it distribute it. Because I'm not trying to go for a record company. Record companies these days they don't return your phone calls. They don't care. Um, until, you know, you got stories like Nickelback selling 300,000 copies and they can't get a phone call returned. So they left. <laughs> you know, it's an unfortunate but uh, 
all-encompassing story for a lot of people up there. And, um, you know, I'm just uh, <clears throat> finalizing these details, and uh, hopefully I'll get it out within the next month or two. So this is something you've been working for a long time, or is this something you've been thinking about for a long time and just started working on it recently? No, I didn't work on it recently. I did it, like, with, over the past maybe eight, ten years. But um, it's all mastered, and uh, it was just a collection of songs that I thought worked appropriately as an album. I know that's kind of old school to think in terms of an album, but I still like them, so I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you hope to accomplish with this album. Uh, I would just like for people to appreciate it. You know, I mean, uh, I, I, I think it's the first time that I've had my writing all in one place, you know, I've done some writing on the, with different collaborations with people I've been with, but um, it's just a collection of tunes, rock and roll stuff from my perspective, and uh, I'm just going to throw it out there and see what happens. Maybe nothing will happen, who knows, but I think it's a good record in the sense that it's, I think it's been described as a new old classic rock, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we'll see, you know, uh, I'm not really in competition with anybody, I'm just a musician, it's what I do, and going to do it anyway. I'm starting actually the next record, I've already started <laughs> Uh, which may show a uh, level of disorganization, but you know, I, uh, I'm just getting. I've got a bunch of tunes that I've had around for a long time that I want to record. A lot of my head. Are you constantly writing? Yeah, I, I do a lot of writing, and uh, I just store things away, ideas and snippets, and then I get back to them. Or there are things that I haven't recorded for a long time, and I, I want to get out of my system. So, when you look back, I'm going to wrap this up soon. But um, I look at your resume and it's ridiculous like it's pretty impressive how do you view the path that you've chosen and, and the journey you've been on well like I said uh, you know I mean it's almost like a calling in a sense that I was too young to know where I was going when I started playing music and I was only playing it for myself uh, I wasn't playing it for other people but this has sort of taken me on a journey and it has been the music and the quality of the music that has taken me you know, around the world, put me in different situations, you know, I, you know, put me in touch with my wife, you know, uh, all sorts of things that have happened to me that wouldn't have happened had I not um, let the music take me here. So I, it's tough to, uh, from my perspective, I've been a very lucky guy in the sense that I'm not really doing much different than I did when I was four, <laughs> uh, except I'm a lot more mature. I'm sure my wife can attest to that. <laughs> A lot more? <laughs> a lot? No, maybe not a lot. Okay. You know, uh, um, what my final question is... I'm hearing a lot of laughing somewhere. <laughs> Where, where's that coming from? Final question is, what's the greatest thing you learned from music? Uh, the greatest thing I've learned? Well, I think the greatest thing that is... Uh, you can go around the world and uh, you meet guys in Czechoslovakia and stuff who know what you've done and... Uh, it's a universal kind of language. It's cliche, I know, but it's actually impressive when you see it, see it exhibited in the sense that music does bring people together. You know, when I was with Elton, we went behind the Iron Curtain, I think it was 84, 85, for a few weeks, and we played uh, Poland, and uh, and everybody, you know, uh, was responding. Some people didn't know how to respond. They had not never seen a rock concert before, but once they got going, it was the same as any, you know, audience anywhere. So I think it has the power to bring people together, and uh, I think that's a good time, a good thing. And in these times, we could uh, we can use a little bit of that. And I think that that that's probably the most uh, 
impressive thing. And I saw, you know, standing on stage at Live Aid, uh, you know, you got a billion people watching it. And, you know, it uh, is a powerful force. And I think that um, you forget about it sometimes. And, you know, but I do have those moments that remind me that this is something greater than yourself. Uh, and I'm happy to have been part of that. Well, thank God for that. Fred, thank you so much for doing this. I, I'm, you know, I'm, oh, my pleasure. I'm so impressed by what you've done. And, and I've been, you know, a lot of the records that you've been on have been on my CD player, my turntable for a long time. And I appreciate that contribution. So thank oh, you. I'm glad, I'm glad you liked it, man. Thank you so much. And I look forward to hearing your album. I'll send you a copy as soon as I... Uh as soon as I finish it. <laughs> Great. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Marco. I'll talk to you uh, soon. Mm-hmm.